So 2 Peter, and we're going to start here at verse 1. Our theme verses this morning are verse 5 through 7, but I'll start at verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we turn to your word now, and we just sang, O Lord, that you would speak through it, Lord, timeless truths that will echo down into eternity. And I pray that as uh, we hear your word, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. I pray that you would give me wisdom to speak your word faithfully and rightly. Lord, bring conviction where we need it. Bring praise, Lord, for you are worthy of it. And in all things, be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said this morning, we're going to deal here with verse 5. We'll tie it in in a second. And actually, uh, as the text calls us to, it ties it in already for us when it says, and beside this, very literally in the Greek, it says, and in this very thing. That's Peter's jump there at verse 5 that calls us back to everything he has just said from verses 1 through 4. And everything there is so important to holy life and holy living. In fact, everything that goes before verse 5 is really uh, that which drives the engine of Christian living. And otherwise it would just simply sputter and die out. And it's easy to forget what comes before. You know, we go out on Sundays and we might be encouraged with the Word of God And on Mondays, we go and we bank our efforts on ourselves again. And so the fuel, the Bible is clear, of holy living is not in us. It is in God and God's provision. As we saw last time, he provides the divine power, verse 3. He gives us great and precious promises, verse 4, that guarantee That by his spirit, he is conforming us, he is shaping us into the image of his son. Into, as it says there, the divine nature. We looked at that in depth last time. We have sprung free from the corruption that is in this world. And all of these things are so important. And so, as one commentator says, he says, God's bounty begets a moral call. God's bounty begets the moral call. Another way of saying that is that the indicatives, the things that are from God, they drive the imperatives, the commands from God. That's the same thing. And so all the virtues that we're going to see this morning from verses 5 through uh, 7 
are reflections of God's nature, God's, uh, the divine nature as we looked at. Um, interestingly, and this is important to remember, Christian uh, growth is in character, not primarily in being disciplined. It is, first of all, in virtues, not in action. It's an inward reality, and from that inward shaping will flow things like discipline and action. But a lot of people turn it on its head, and they say, well, I just got to be more disciplined, or I got to be a man of action. No, God actually calls us to be inwardly refined. That's where it all starts. And so we got to keep that focus as God calls us to keep that focus. And so he says, giving all diligence, or literally, all diligence bringing in. The idea of diligence, spudazzo in the Greek, you can hear it, speed, earnestness, haste, striving hard after holiness. We're not used to talking like that, but that's how God calls us to live, to strive diligently for holiness. Uh, and then the next word, um, to bring it in, is only used here in the entire New Testament. It means to bring alongside of, quietly. No show, no glitz, no gra- uh, glamour, but earnestly bring in these virtues into your life. Be very diligent about this. Together, these two words call for nothing less than a strenuous, earnest effort from our side. Remember, God has given so much. Now, from our side, labor, as Paul would say in Philippians 2, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. This is the opposite of what the false teachers were doing in Second Peter. They were promoting a lackadaisical, careless, reckless life. One commentator will comment, and he says this. um, He says, rest not satisfied then with a mere negative exertion. Don't just coast. Or with low fragmentary measure of accomplishment. Don't be satisfied with that. But cooperating to the full extent of the divine purpose. Go on unto perfection. Are you lazy? in your growth of character. Oh, that we would do away with concepts of sloth in holiness. It's so easy to to become a coasting Christian, to shrug off duties and responsibilities, to not be so concerned with the inward growth. If we want to make any progress in our faith, and if it is a faith that is real, it will, in fact, it must go on and make every effort to press into the kingdom. Think about the things in your life that you're the most passionate about. Think about the things that you're industrious at, probably things that you're productive in and good at. Maybe for some it's a clean house. You keep a very clean house. Others it's a successful business or you're very good at your job. Maybe it's success in sports or in education. For others, you spend a lot of time tinkering in the workshop, and you're good at that, and you you can build things. Perhaps you're meticulous in just being presentable, and you're good at that. But what about your character? Are you industrious in shaping godly virtues in your life? Oh, that we would be the most diligent, the most zealous, for holiness.
Matthew Henry wrote many years ago. He says, without giving all diligence, there is no gaining any ground in the work of holiness. Those who are slothful in the business of religion will make nothing of it. We must strive if we will enter in at the straight gate. Luke 13, 24. And so from there, Peter says, giving all diligence, bring in, add to your faith. Add to your faith. You know what's interesting? You know what he assumes? Faith. Faith is an assumption. It's there. He's talking to Christians. He assumes it. But he says from there, add to your faith. The word to add literally is furnish. Furnish your faith with these things. It was a word that in ancient Greek culture cost you something. You were willing to give stuff up to bring this in. Are you prepared that your, your growth in holiness costs you something? Are you ready to give up certain things because this growth is that important to you? Or do you think you're exempt from the calling William Wilberforce, the great man who would be so instrumental in abolishing the slave trade, he wrote a book called Practical Christianity because his two great concerns were the abolition of the slave trade and holiness in the people of England. And he wrote Practical Christianity and he says this, there is no hint given that any persons are at liberty to consider themselves accepted or exempt from their obligation to God. And he's right, isn't he? To add to your faith means intentionality. It means actually taking an inventory of your life, taking stock. Do you do that? Are we used to taking stock of our growth in character? I don't think we are. I, I, I don't think we do that too quickly. If you look at your last months or the last year, maybe at a New Year's a good time to do, can you say you are growing in holiness? Are there sins that you're more aware of that you, you weren't aware of before? Are there tendencies that you seek to guard yourself against? Are there holy passions that are being formed in you? Zeal for holy things that you never saw before. Adding to your faith means learning from others. Be like Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus, eager to learn from the Master. Do you, do you spend time learning from saints in the past? Do you, do you read good books? Do you listen to sermons? I would highly recommend you to immerse yourself in men like St. Augustine or Calvin or particularly the Puritans. There's an, a treasure trove there. These men were so practical, so practical in their faith. You know, as you walk through the beauty of nature, you know what it does? Spurgeon would do this when he was depressed. He would walk through, through a nice lane and, and he would be uh, evoked to have a pleasant frame of spirit. Well, in the same way, take your mind and stroll in your mind and meditate on the beauties and the excellencies of Christ and of God. By doing that, you will evoke a pleasant frame of spirit and you will desire to be more like him because you are satisfied in him. Oh, pray, pray that you would have a greater view of God. 
pray that you would have a delight in holiness, that holiness is something that you would see, as it says in, in, in Exodus 15, that God is beautiful in holiness. Now, like I said, in the text, faith is assumed to be present. It's thus, it is a gift from God. Like it said in verse 1, who have obtained like precious faith. God gives that to you. And so we are not charged to supply it. Faith is not just mere doctrinal affirmation. It's not giving the right answers on on your catechism test. Children, it's not just being able to regurgitate what your parents told you. Faith is embracing Christ for all that he is. It's so much more than head knowledge. I remember when we were doing door-to-door ministry and you'd knock on the doors of people who, who went to church. They'd give all the right answers. Some of them would. But you could tell their heart wasn't beating after Christ. And after all that he is. Answers is not faith. That's information. You see, affirmations lead to convictions. And convictions lead to commitments. And so here what we see Peter do is he's unpacking seven personal graces that we are now to add to faith. Now, we must not think in this list that we are to master the first one before we can move on to the second one, and we have to master that one before we can move on like that. This whole thing here is what's called an ancient sorite, is a fancy term for it. A sorite was a step-by-step statement. They were very thick in ancient culture. They would use them a lot. That would proceed through logic to a climactic conclusion. Each word picking up on the last. That's why it says, add to this, this, and add to this, this. It just, that's what a sorite is. Now, all of these, um, these virtues, if you look at verses 3 and 4 and then at verse 8, you'll notice that they're all packed between a very instrumental word. It's actually in verse um, 2 and verse 3, and that is the word knowledge. And in verse 8, we see the same word, to be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the word for knowledge, if you remember, there was epignosin, which means to, to apprehend. It's not just head knowledge. That is the head knowledge that has moved to embrace. And so packaged between epignosin are these virtues. And so what we see there is that epignosin, this knowledge and faith, are identical. They refer to one and the same reality. Also, if you look at the list, you'll notice that the first four virtues, which are virtue, knowledge, temperance, and patience, they focus on things within, the things that God calls us to shape in ourselves. But the last three are actually focusing on relationships to God and man, godliness, and um, brotherly kindness, and charity. Now, by building from one to the next, what do they do? They show a cohesive unity between all seven of them. Each of these virtues are intended to unfold further beauty and breadth of Christian character from a different angle. Maybe you've been a Christian for years. But if you look at your life, you're not flourishing. It's kind of drab. It's flat. Is it maybe because Although we are very intentionally working on one or two of these things, if you can pick one or two on the list, you're like, yeah, I've been really diligently working on that. The other ones you kind of ignore. 
Maybe you haven't given them much thought, and maybe that is precisely why you are lacking in your walk. The Puritan William Gurnall, his famous book, The Christian in Complete Armor, he would write this. He says, of these graces, he says, they hang together like links in a chain, stones in an arch, members in the body, prick one vein, and the blood of the whole body may run out at that sluice. Neglect one duty, and no other will do us good. They're cohesive together. We need all of them. Don't discard one of them. And so the first one we pick up is virtue. Virtue. This is actually a very rare word, and it means moral excellence, purity. It's the same word in verse 3 that, at the end of verse 3, describes Christ, him who has called us by glory and virtue. But Lest you think virtue is just moral excellence inside, it is a word that intrinsically calls you to action. It involves doing something. It is the opposite, then, of being timid, uncertain, and undecided. Is that who you are? Maybe, maybe you're a timid kind of person. You, you don't engage. Some commentators actually say of this word virtue, it is manly, vigorous, decided conduct. It intentionally stands against evil. It goes out and does battle beyond what would be normal in society. It engages. And so if you have inward struggle with something you see in society or in church or in your own life, do something about it. Speak up. Be bold. Be vigorous. Be wise. But virtue is not rash. We can be rash very quickly and foolish. No, rather, virtue is principled action. Principled action. Proverbs 28.1 says this, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. That's what God calls us to be. How easy it is to run I think when the pressure is on, isn't it? How easily don't we shirk our calling when the heat is on? Oh, the devil loves it when we forget the power of God. And so virtue is built on faith because virtue needs God to move. You're not going to be courageous if there's nothing behind your action. But by trusting in God, your virtue is legitimate, it is grounded, it is exercised in humility. Psalm 56, 11 says, But in God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think of what they did. I think we, we, we lose sight of what these men really did. They stood in front of the greatest man alive with respect to power and might in front of his legions of armies, his valiant soldiers, and they said to the king that they would not bow down. They said, even if God would allow us to die, that's okay. But, he said, but they say, but if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. That is virtue. To do that, to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or think of men like Athanasius, 
who stood against the world. He's, he's, his, the famous statement for Athanasius is, Athanasius contra mundum, against the world. They'd put him in the pulpit, they'd kick him out again, they'd put him back, they'd kick him out again. That was the life of Athanasius. He stood. Think of men like William Farrell, early in the Reformation, taking an idol literally in front of an entire entourage and a priest carrying an idol and throwing it into a river. That was what Pharrell did. These guys were men of courage. Think of John Knox, of whom the Queen Mary would say that she trembled more of the prayers of John Knox than of the armies of England. Think of men like Wilberforce, I've mentioned, or men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stood against Hitler. He went back into Germany after he had been taken out. Men of virtue were men of action principled action. Let us stand where others fear. Let us speak up where others are silent. Let us advance the name of Christ where others are denying the name of the King of Kings. Let us be people of virtue. Next, knowledge. Gnosis, not epignosis. They're similar. Knowledge is not so much here the knowledge of doctrine, but it is very practical knowledge. He says, add to your virtue knowledge, because without it, our virtues can be unregulated. They can be foolish and presumptuous zeal. How often haven't you wondered, well, what's the right decision in the midst of adversity or trials or struggles? Maybe that's where you're at right now in your life, In the providence of God, you are going through financial struggles, job situations. Maybe it's in parenting. You want wisdom. Maybe it's in your education and your future. You need wisdom. You need knowledge. Perhaps it's in family relationships. There's conflicts going on. Perhaps it's the uncertainty of what our government is doing on us and and these new bills that keep coming and the increasing wickedness. You see, it is by knowledge that we don't act rashly. We don't go in blindly, but rather we seek the prudence from the word of God. Proverbs 19.22 says this, Also the soul be without knowledge. That the soul be without knowledge, it is not good. And he that hasteth with his feet sinneth. Don't rush in like a fool. Have knowledge before you go. Virtue needs knowledge. How often haven't you or I, have we reacted rashly and we panic and, and, and we start to worry? Is it not because we do not respond in knowledge? Paul says that to the Ephesians. He says, but be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. That's a command. That's a command which requires action. Again, William Gurnall, he says of knowledge, and I love this quote. He says, knowledge is the candle without which faith cannot see to do its work. That's a nice quote. And to knowledge, temperance. Because temperance, you hear it in the word, to temper something is to control it. Learning to master your desires and your passions. It means not being controlled by your appetites, your senses. A healthy knowledge of the things of God will lead to temperance. 
Because if you don't have temperance, you guess what happens? You get extravagance. You get indulgence. Philip Schaff writes that extravagance is the child of ignorance. That's exactly what the false teachers were doing in Peter's day. They, in verse, chapter 2, verse 2, it says they were doing pernicious things, which is shameless, filthy living. They lived in the lusts of uncleanness. They sported themselves in their own deceivings. They had eyes full of adultery. There was no temperance in their lives. So we must learn to furnish our lives with moderation, even in good things, food, drink, what you buy, your leisure time, how much time you spend on, at work, concern for your body and your fitness or your appearance, the desire for ease. Temper all of that. Matthew Henry writes, those who take more of these, of these good things than is their due can render neither to God nor to man what is their due. It means knowing your weaknesses. What are you prone to falling into, to indulge into? It'll be different for each one of us, won't it? Maybe you're very strong and good at holding back a bag on the back on the bag of chips, sorry. But you're terribly weak in your time in social media. You spend hours in Facebook or looking for something, shopping. Maybe you're good at balancing your time at work, but terrible at how you spend your leisure time. You indulge. You just become a couch potato. You become lazy. Indulging in the things of earth, it will compete and choke your spiritual growth. So temperance, temperance, put on that virtue. And then it says from temperance, it moves, and to temperance, patience, hupomone, two-part word, to bear under. Literally talking about steadfastness, constancy, endurance. The very word is applied to God himself. Now may the God of all patience, Romans 15, 5. Patience, endurance, means not swerving from our loyalty to Christ and to holiness. In fact, the book of Revelation, written to the saints who are in tribulation, is thick with the concept and the word patience. Herein lies the patience of the saints, the endurance, the ability to press on in spite of adversity, in spite of difficulty, in spite of persecution. Again, the false teachers were doing the opposite. They weren't enduring. They were throwing in the towel. Where's the promise of his coming? He hasn't come back yet, so let's just do whatever we want to do. There was no endurance in their lives. Philip Schaff says this, Christ himself gives patience as a grace in which the soul is to be one. Now, you want to know why he says that? Because Jesus says so much in Luke 21, 19. Jesus says, in your patience possess ye your souls. We have to endure, hold fast unto the end. And patience, endurance, naturally follows from temperance, learning not to indulge. For when we learn to control our passions, we are at the same time better prepared 
to endure sufferings because it's okay if you lost some financial strength. It's okay if you go without all of the excesses of food. It's okay if your Facebook account shuts down and the Wi-Fi crashes. It's okay. Perhaps your greatest struggle isn't so much indulgence in things like electronics, stuff, wardrobes, but instead your greatest struggle is in adversities and they are causing your faith to stagger. You control the allures really well. You're pretty cleaned up. You're pretty disciplined. But you are buckling under the health struggles that God has brought into your life. Perhaps the financial struggles. Perhaps it's the unbelieving spouse or family member that is causing you to wonder and not to endure. Are you getting angry with God? Do you notice that in your life? You're frustrated with him. You're almost at the point of saying, God, this is not right. You can't be doing this. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, he says this, When a man is not angry at his sins, but at his condition, so the things God has brought, this is different from patience. Then he says these profound words, Discontent is the daughter of pride. So we must learn in the school of Christ that it was our Lord who called us to come after him, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. People wear crosses on necklaces. They were not pretty things. When Jesus died, he was nailed to this beam that would hang about this high. We always see it on hills. No, these crosses would be at eyeball height. Crows would peck at them. Dogs would gnaw at them. They would be in agony. And Jesus calls us to take up our cross and to follow him. If you are prone to complain, if we are that way, remember that our sufferings, the trials that God has brought in your life and in my life, are actually less than we deserve. Rest in the wisdom of God, in perfectly measuring out, tailor designing the sufferings in your life, the afflictions, the chastisements are not accidental. They're designed. Again, Thomas Watson wrote this. He says, The Lord never takes away any comfort from his people without giving them something better. Godliness. Godliness. There's a lot here. So much here. This, this sermon was such a, a uh, convicting message for me to work on because there's so many areas that I need to be shaped in. Godliness, this is reverence. The highest regard towards God. When we learn to patiently endure trials, it surrounds the idea of the all-wise God. Then we learn to reverence him more when we see that. Godliness, dear people, is tied to a life of worship. Now, you might think, oh, I'm such a moral person. I'm not bad. I'm a pretty good guy. Maybe. Yet, if you do not worship God, you are the most 
immoral person. For you deny the fountain of all righteousness. If you think you can call the shots as to how God is worshipped, and not by Scripture's rule, William Gurnall says, if that's who we are, then we are idolaters. In fact, Proverbs 28, 9 says this, He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer, looks godly, is an abomination or shall be an abomination. Gurnall goes on, If you do worship God according to the rule, according to Scripture, but not in spirit and in truth, then you are a hypocrite and fill the devil's mouth. And so we are called to furnish our lives with a high regard, the greatest regard for God himself. Do the preachers you listen to, do the books you read, do the podcasts you listen to, the things you read on the internet that feed your mind, have God as the greatest and the highest and the ultimate Good is his glory at the center. Let godliness be the robe that surrounds your every action. Prize Christ above all things. We need to clothe ourselves with godliness because we are living coram Deo in the presence of God. He is here in his spirit among us. Whither can I flee from thy presence? Nowhere. If you struggle to have godliness, maybe take some time away from your computer and your iPhone and go outside and walk in nature. Look up to the heavens and behold the Creator. Look down at the sand and the microbes that are crawling around. And behold the wonder of him who sustains every atom, every electron, every bug that is crawling to the highest heavens. Have godliness surround you because God is great. Wake up and go to bed praising the one whose honor is supreme, whose holiness cannot behold evil, whose approval you must have, and by whom alone we cannot be satisfied. Godliness will show itself because you will hate sin more and embrace holiness more. Take stock of yourself. Is that what you see growing in your life? Brotherly kindness. This one was very convicting to think of. And and we all think, yeah, we know that brotherly kindness. Add to your godliness brotherly kindness. It is the sweet complement to godliness. Because to fear God is to love the people of God. They're one and the same. We are part of one another. We are part of the body of Christ. Do you have a tender affection for the people of God? Oh, how how the devil loves to sow division in churches. He loves to rip the body apart, to bring schism. And that's exactly what the false teachers were doing. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. They're false prophets. They're bringing in damnable heresies. They're sowing division. Brotherly love will be seen in protecting the body. Elders, those among us who are leaders, watch over the flock in love. Fathers of your children, you are called to lead your homes. Are you aware of the teaching that enters into your house? Or do you let your kids just do whatever on these things? Mothers, 
Are you aware of the influences that are daily upon your children when the husband is away for good or for ill? Are you aware of that? Young people. The Bible is clear. Solomon says this, Remember thy creator in the days of thy, thy youth. Love one another means seeking the welfare of one another. Do you realize the Spirit has bound us together for eternity? The body of believers, we're going to be with each other forever. And think about the divine favor that God poured out on you when he called you a miserable worm and upon me a miserable sinner. We were unlovable. None of us has anything that deserved any love, any attention, any affection, any grace. Now, if God did that for us, let us honor his divine choice by echoing that in loving one another. If you struggle to love one another, maybe it is because you struggle to see the greatness of election and of God's calling in your life. Psalm 119.63 says this, I am a companion of all them that fear thee and of them that keep thy precepts. We are companions one of another. What does this mean? This is very practical. Loving one another is seeing, loving to see one another being conformed to the image of Christ. That is where it will be seen best. What good is it if all we can talk about after church with each other is our jobs, our homes, the weather, and politics. Love one another, above all, by taking an interest in the spiritual well-being of one another. Do you talk with each other about the pursuit of holiness? Or did you spend all the time talking about work? Learn to show a genuine interest in the spiritual well-being of each other. Now you might say, well, I'm a private person or I don't want to be too prying. Be careful that these excuses do not fly in the name of God. Like, be careful that, is God happy with that kind of an excuse? If he calls us to brotherly love, would he want us to hide in a corner and never talk about these things? You see, brotherly love takes intentionality. It takes patience, it takes prayer, and it takes conviction. Because it is conviction that will press you forward through your shyness and through asking the questions that might be awkward. But you will be able to pray more profoundly for that person. This week I got a phone call from Heart Cry Ministries, and the man asked me, he says, What can I pray for for this church? And it was such a blessing. We prayed over the phone for the body, and the body is loved and brought to the throne of God by this man, and will be continued to be brought to the throne of God because he knows. Love one another means knowing one another. How do you love one another? By learning from the master. Study the master. Study Christ in the gospels. Learn from him how to love the body. What did Jesus do for the sheep? How did he speak with the woman at the well? How did he speak with his disciples? How did Jesus live? 
Brotherly love means action. Exactly in Matthew 25, when Jesus said, Depart from me to the goats, he says, Come to the kingdom, ye sheep. And how does he answer what they did? He says, Come ye blessed, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hunger, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. And, and you know what they say. They said, when did we see you such and such and so? And Jesus' answer is so profound. Rivet his answer to your heart. Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it to, unto the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Let us add to faith brotherly love. Last of all, and to brotherly kindness, charity, charity. When the word agape is used as a substantive or as a noun, translators would translate it as charity, a thing. Charity is a virtue. It is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. Our love, though beating, strongest for God and the people of God, should enlarge unto all men. Paul writes the same things to the Thessalonians when he says, And the Lord make you increase and abound in love one towards another and towards all men, even as we do towards you. Matthew Henry puts it so well when he says, God has made all of us, this world, all people of one blood, and all the children of men are the partakers of the same human nature, are capable of the same mercies, liable of the same afflictions. And so he says we are to sympathize with others in their calamities and relieve their necessities and promote their welfare, both body and soul, as you have opportunity. That stretches beyond the church into society. We are all one blood. You see, it is by love that we are able to do good to the worst of men. Now, when I wrote that, I thought, that's shocking. Don't lose the shock factor in that. To do good unto the worst of men. Think of some of the atrocities of history. Can you love people like that? William Gurnall says this, when they curse thee, thou must pray for them. And then he says this, Yea, pray no less than a Christ and a heaven for them. Think of Betsy Ten Boom, Corey Ten Boom, in concentration camps. No less than a Christ and a heaven for them. Loving all men means using what God has gifted you in for his glory for all men. Are you good with your hands? Are you good at carpentry, mechanics, baking, sewing? Bless others with that gift that God has given you. 
Do you have the gift of intellect? Are you bright in your mind? Philip Doddridge, writing in the 1700s, says about a sharp mind, he says this, it was not a sharp mind was given to you, not that you might amuse or deck yourself with it, which should serve only to attract and dazzle the eyes of men. That's not why God made some people incredibly intelligent, to say, oh, look at me. Rather, Doddridge says this, you were given intelligence to be a means of leading both yourself and them to the Father of lights. So if you have been given the ability to think sharply and deductively and wisely, use your mind to shape the thinking of others, of children, of society, of this world, to honor the great God who has given such an amazing and vast and manifold wisdom and knowledge in this world. He has revealed so much. Use your mind for his glory. Do you have the gift of leadership? Do you have an uncanny ability to lead groups? Are you in a position of authority? Remember, all authority is given by God. Be a servant in leadership. Hate bribery. Be a person of integrity if you lead. Thus you will love all men. Do you have wealth and privilege? Love others with your means to bless. Do you have a strong body? Help those whose body is weak. Be on the lookout how you can help the weak. Do you have a family? Labor to show to your family the excellence of God and his kingdom so that your family can love the world. Do you have a lot of extra time on your hands? You have been given that gift of time. You don't have all these things that tie you down. What can you do to love the world? Pray for them. There's nothing greater than bringing and lifting up your neighbors, your friends, your family, your, your, the people you bumped into at the grocery stores. Bring them before the throne of the Almighty. Love them by praying for them. I got to stop. But people, love is the crown gem on the necklace of faith. We are called to a high calling, and we often fail. How great is our sins, but we must remember how great of a Savior we have. Christ is our supply. He has given all these things. Build on him. If you are outside of Christ, your first and highest duty is simply this, the obedience of of faith. The obedience of faith. Do away with pretending that you're such a good person. Your sins betray your guilt. Do away with any ideas of self-merit. Be done with your pride and turn to Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners. Clothe yourselves in his righteousness and with that clothing, arm yourself with virtues. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and there's a lot here to think about. Oh Lord, I just pray where we are convicted that you would drive us to diligence, 
to haste and to furnish our lives with a good and right supply of these character qualities that you call us to. Teach us your ways, O Lord, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.